And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a sunny Monday afternoon in Los Angeles, California. And if we're in LA, we might as well start to suss out the Western Conference hierarchy. This season is only uh, about a month away. And we're going to do that first with ESPN's Kevin Pelton by focusing on one team that I haven't done a real in-depth preview about. A team that remade itself with a, a big controversial out of nowhere trade at the deadline last year that drafted in the lottery yet again and got a a a summer league mvp out of it and it's a big year for this franchise it's a big year there's even talk i I don't i don't i don't want to get too excited i don't want to i don't want to put the proverbial cart before the horse there's even talk of 40 wins almost 500 in sacramento california there's even talk of a play-in berth. Maybe we could sneak into the, the play-in. There's even talk of maybe we can end the longest playoff drought in the NBA. A playoff drought that dates all the way to 2006. And Kevin Pelton, if you and I were put in charge of a franchise for 15 years and we just made our draft selections by throwing darts at a dartboard of random names and our free agency selections by throwing darts at a dartboard of random free agents and random salary figures, and we just combined all that into a team, I bet we could make the playoffs once in 15 years. Mr. Pelton, let's talk about the Sacramento Kings. How you doing? I'm doing well. First off, I believe Tom Ziller did a post about that once upon a time, about like if the Kings had just randomly selected whoever was at the highest of the mock drafts, that their draft picks would have been so much better than they were. Second, it is the second longest active playoff drought in the big four pro sports. But by the time that the season begins, the Seattle Mariners could have made the playoffs for the first time since 2001, which would render the Kings the longest active playoff drought. In all of pro sports. You know, you know what that means? Let's go Mariners, baby. Let's <laughs> let's put the Kings on an island of their own making all by themselves. Let's go how are the how have the Mariners been that bad for as someone who opted out of baseball like fifteen years ago, I remember the Mariners as a, like a powerhouse, the team that won a million games and lost to the Yankees in the playoffs. Then you had King Felix for a while. How did this happen? Yeah, and it's like one thing, it's like in, in the NFL it was Buffalo, in the NBA it's Sacramento. It's Smaller markets have had these long playoff droughts. For it to happen in Seattle, which is a high-revenue team, is is really, really pathetic over a long period of time. But now they are well-managed and have Julio Rodriguez. So all is well. I don't know. Is that a pitcher or a hitter? <laughs> He's a hitter. What position does he play? Center field. He's the, I, I don't want to say the new Griffey, but the, the new Griffey. Oh, well, there's only one. I mean, Ken Griffey, that swing is, this that is, swing is, this is not the last time Ken Griffey Jr. will come up on this podcast. Ooh, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the Kings draft picks. We don't we don't need to go through all of them. They're almost all bad. Um the Kings had the I, I guess slight misfortune of always they, it seemed like they picked fifth, sixth, or seventh every year. So they they rarely, if ever, and we'll talk about the one time they did, got like a top two or three crown jewel pick most of them they just missed on completely one they hit out of the park Tyrese Halliburton they just traded for DeMontis Sabonis another one they hit pretty well DeMarcus Cousins now yes we all know the baggage and the issues and the conflict and the continued losing during the DeMarcus Cousins era but man you look back at that Cousins trade Kevin 
That trade sucks for the Kings. It just sucks. They got Buddy Heald, Tyreek Evans, one of their old buddies, one measly first-round pick. You look at the picks getting thrown around right now. Obviously, it's a different era. And and at the time, it was explained that Vivek Ranadive, the owner uh, slash circus manager of the Kings, uh, what the ringmaster, the ringmaster of the Kings, um, coveted Buddy Heald on a level of of that he was like worth four first-round picks. And, and it's like they lost Bogdanovich for nothing in restricted free agency, which I didn't mind. If you go back and, like, actually report what their alternatives were, that was that was fine. Even things like they traded the Zach Collins pick, number 10, for two first-round picks, which on value on value is good. I think it was 15 and 20. They got Justin Jackson and Harry Giles. Where are I, – I mean, I think the Celtics just signed Justin Jackson to, like, a camp deal or something. Donovan Mitchell was picked three picks after Zach Collins. I mean, it just goes on – and on and on with this team, and it's just left them over. Like that just adds up to not only do you miss those picks, you miss on getting trade assets, you miss on having all sorts of optionality to build your team. And we haven't even hit the big one, Mr. Pelton. And you know better than I do. The big one is with the number two pick in the 2018 draft, the Sacramento Kings, with Luka Doncic staring them in the face, selected Marvin Bagley, who now plays for the Detroit Pistons. Uh, got a nice contract, uh, and and it's never been fully explained why that happened. The Kings gave up on Marvin Bagley, traded him to the Pistons at the deadline last year for what looked like an okay package, headlined by Dante Givincenzo, who they just decided, yeah, we don't even like him. He's not good. He's not on our team. It's just, it's a disaster. It's not even a disaster because a disaster implies like a single isolated catastrophe. It's it's really incredible when you go back and look at it. I mean, it's it's mismanagement. It's the only way to put it. And, you know, that's involved a lot of different people over the years. The, you know, this playoff drought precedes Vivek Ranadive's group buying the Kings, but they certainly have been the common denominator over a long period of time. And, uh, you know, it, it, a variety of different people coming through the front office. Vladi Divac, the one Eastern European he didn't draft in his time was Luka Doncic. It really does, does boggle the mind. It's really, you feel for Kings fans. And they just, they always do things like they're the, they, they pioneered the process of hiring the head coach before the general manager. So the general manager is a natural tension is built in. So you end up getting rid of one good coach after another and just flailing about looking for coaches. And it, it and yet in 2000, in 2019, in the second half of that season, it looked for a hot second that they had, they were maybe onto what could have become an interesting homegrown team with Fox and Hield and Bogdanovich. Bagley was playing well. Giles looked interesting. That all blew up in smoke. But here we are. And and this team has, I mentioned all the names before, they have some real talent on the team. Positionally, some of it makes sense. Um, but you look at the, if you try to start to tier the West in, in sort of a broader power rankings, you look at over-unders, and, and I'm not sure these over-unders are fair to the Kings, but... There's a huge gap between Portland is generally penciled in at 10th, and then there's like a seven or eight win gap down to Sacramento at 11th, and then the bottom four, Utah, Oklahoma City, Houston, San Antonio. Um, you know, we 
if you had to tier it out really, really broadly by wins, I, I, maybe the first tier would be Clippers, Warriors, Suns, Nuggets in some order. I think Minnesota has a chance of budding into that tier. Memphis has a chance of budding into that tier. Dallas has a chance of budding into that tier. That's seven when you include the tier one and the buttons. Then you've got Pelicans. We could. I, I think the Pelicans have a chance to be solid, beyond solid maybe. Lakers, I just, I don't, who the hell knows. Blazers, their over-under is generally around 40 and a half or 39 and a half. That's 10. That's the play-in. That's it. Then there's this giant gulf between Portland and Sacramento, like a six or eight win gulf, depending on which Vegas site you look at. Their over-under is like 32 and a half or 33 and a half. Vegas just thinks the Kings are bad, that they're just a bad team. Typical, bad, crappy Sacramento Kings, way below the play-in, way below Portland. And I got to tell you, KP, look, I understand skepticism about the Sacramento Kings. That number seems low to me. I'm not sure where I'd rank them in the West or what I would characterize their play-in chances are as, but that number seems low to me. What are your initial projections, both your projections and just your opinion? What do you think? We've said a lot of negative things about the Kings, and I, I, it's been a tough listen, I'm sure, so far for their fans. So let's give them some positivity. Give me the over on that one, easily. Uh, I, have I run, agree. I have run some preliminary projections. I have not done as many West teams, their rotations yet, as in the Eastern Conference when we talked about it recently with uh, the Atlanta Hawks. But Sacramento and Portland are neck and neck in terms of the preliminary versions of the projections, and that's not dissimilar, I think, from how I feel about things Subjectively, I I like some of the things the Kings like the direction the Kings are headed, and I think people are being a little too optimistic about Portland just being kind of right back to where they were with a healthy Damian Lillard. In part because since the 2019 Conference Finals, the Blazers have not been out of that play-in tier. They've been in that play-in tier for a long period of time. And I think the other thing that works in the Kings' favor, if you're talking about getting in the play-in here, and maybe this is jumping forward a bit, the four teams below them have no interest in making the play-in. So the odds of them falling below 11th are very low. But the odds of one of the teams above them having a season like Portland did last year that gets decimated by injuries and you end up you know, with a one-season tank, the, the reset of the Golden State Warriors model, those are very high when you've got 10 teams to pick from. So I think the odds are very good that even if Sacramento is, in your mind, the 11th best team in the Western Conference, the odds of them finishing in the top 10 are very good. Who's your candidate then? I mean, obviously you could you could run simulations where like Kawhi and Paul George get hurt and, and a team just like the Clippers, who should be a fifty five to sixty one team, collapses into nothingness. You know, the all Jokic and Murray could get hurt. If just just sort of factor in normal health luck or like normal bad health luck for one of these teams. Who's the candidate in that top ten to fall behind Sacramento? Or maybe you can pick two. I mean, it sounds like Portland to you is an obvious one. Yeah, Portland, I think, is a, a pretty obvious one. They're still very dependent on Damian Lillard, even though you know I liked some of what they did with that revamped lineup after the trade deadline with Anthony Simons leading the way before he got shut down. Uh, the Lakers, quite obviously. like If you're talking about a team whose situation is really fragile and precarious, depending on the health of their stars, the Los Angeles Lakers have to be at the top of that list. We already saw what happens when Anthony Davis and LeBron James get hurt, and there isn't enough talent to step up. That was the 2020 21-22 Lakers. How many combined games do those two guys need to get for you to feel comfortable with the Lakers as 
at minimum a play-in team, which could take 45 wins in the Western Conference. I think probably 120. I don't know how that compares to what they played last season off the top of my head, but that's that's the number that jumps into my mind, about 60 each. That's how I feel about the Lakers. Like, I don't love the supporting cast. We've all spent way too much time talking about what Pro projects is just an okay to maybe very good if everything hits on the bullseye team. But if they get 120 games from those guys, they're just so good. And, and I've said before, I think Anthony Davis is going to have a big bounce back year. This is going to be in Anthony Davis' vengeance season if he stays healthy. I just don't see how they can be as, as, as ill-fitting as some of the supporting cast around them is, as potentially explosive some of the Westbrook drama is, as reliant as they are on guys with below-average three-point shooting track records, holes in their games on defense, whatever. If those two guys play 120 games, I think the Lakers have a pretty high floor. Portland, I agree with you. The problem for the Kings, I think, and by the way, Kings fans, I'm hammering the over. I think those numbers are way too low. I, I think they, they underrate the Kings' talent, and I think they underrate to the degree, uh, as opposed to the bottom four teams, this team will try to squeeze out every single possible win. They will hang a banner if they lose in the play-in tournament. That's a banner for the Kings, given what's happened there in the last 20 years. My worry is I look at those teams above them, Clippers, Warriors, Suns, Nuggets, Mavericks, Wolves, Grizzlies. That's seven that even with bad injury luck, I just don't see them falling behind the Kings. That's just Those teams are just too good. I'm almost ready to put New Orleans in that category because I think they have – I think New Orleans has – their over-under is 44.5. I think I would hit the over on that as well. You're making a skeptical face at me about no, New Orleans. No, no, I think the same way because it, just as I said that we already saw like the the not maybe not the worst case version, but like a tenth percentile outcome for last year's Lakers. We saw that in terms of the Pelicans' health last year, and they still ended up making the playoffs. They still were ahead of the King. So I, I do think New Orleans is unlikely to fall below them. But that said, um, and, and the other thing about the Kings is look. I can't even – they're at a, co- a coach a year for the last 15 years. Every time they seem to have landed on a good functional coach, they inexplicably fire that person dating to Mike Malone, which is – Michael Malone, rather, which is the most inexplicable coach firing. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and off the top of my head rank inexplicable coach firings, but it's got to be in the top three in the NBA in the last 15 years. Michael Malone's done nothing but win with the Denver Nuggets. In, in any case – I do think Mike Brown is a really good hire for the Kings. And the reason I think that is because the quickest way to competence in the NBA, and that's all the Kings have to shoot for, is competence. They should work competent into their slogan for 2022-23. Like the 2022-23 Kings, we might be competent. It's like on news radio when Bill McNeil got called adequate and decided to turn this into the greatest compliment of all time. I don't remember that. It was Bill McNeil, the Phil Hartman character. Yes, yes. R.I.P. Phil Hartman. Oh, Just what a, what a what a what a legend. Any SNL skit you find him in on random reruns, it's just a, it's just a home run every time. The quickest way to competency in the NBA is to just be okay defensively. Just be you'd rather be good. I don't think they have the personnel to be good, but just be okay. Just make the other team earn it on every single possession. Just install one 
simple set of rules. Like I thought Luke Walton and his staff in particular got a little too cute trying to toggle between schemes and rules. And if this guy goes left, we do this. And if that guy goes over the screen, we do that, blah, blah, blah. Just we're going to do this. We're going to do it every time. Do it or you're not playing. I'm going to take you out of the game. I think Mike Brown will bring that to the table. Here's the system. We're going to drill it every day. We care about it more than offense. It's going to keep us in enough games that we have a chance to hit that over and maybe hit the play. And I like the Mike Brown hire for that reason because I think you look at the roster and we can go through it. I think the biggest question is how can they how can they build an average defense bookended by Fox at point guard and Sabonis at center? Absolutely. That was what my follow-up was going to be, which is for Brown to get this team to competent on defense, I think would be a pretty impressive accomplishment in terms of the personnel. We've seen, you know, the Pacers generally when they played DeMontis Sabonis at center and had Miles Turner off the court, they were better offensively, but predictably much worse defensively with the lack of rim protection. And, you know, if you take Davion Mitchell out of the picture, who's the best defender in Sacramento's, you know, top six? Is it Harrison Barnes? Is it Keegan Murray as a rookie? It, it can't be Keegan Murray just because you're disqualified. I right. think it's Harrison Barnes. I think it, I think it's perpetually on the trade block but never traded. And now in an expiring contract, it kind of actually matters what the Kings do going forward with him. I think it's Harrison Barnes. And look, the Kings with Fox and Sabonis, it was a limited sample size. Fox went bananas the entire second half of the season. And Sabonis is a stud. I, I didn't like the Halliburton-Sabonis trade for the Kings, I wouldn't have made it for all the reasons that we talked about then. Halliburton is just such a more malleable, fittable player. He can play with anybody on any... First of all, he's really good. And second of all, I, I you can play with any team, any style. Sabonis, because he is an in-the-paint center who can't protect the rim on defense, sort of limits the kinds of teams you can build around him. But... He's also a really good player. And I thought the Kings were sort of, even though I didn't like the trade, I thought the dialogue around the trade was so nasty and negative toward the Kings that I thought it ended up underrating Sabonis. I even had, I had a, I had one or two NBA executives over the summer just shooting the breeze say to me that the Halliburton-Sabonis trade could go down as the worst trade of the last 20 years in the NBA from the Kings' perspective. Well, it's going to be, that it's gonna be tough to top both the uh, Boston-Brooklyn trade and then also Sacramento's own trade where they gave up, what, the number three pick in the draft in a swap rights to just like when they could have just uh, stretched players? Well, so it it worst is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like yeah. the Brooklyn-Boston one was for sure the most damaging. It was at least explainable right. and you could talk yourself into like the Nets could be really good with Pearson Garnett and on and on. I think qualitatively, the trade you're talking about, which is when the Kings dumped Carl Landry, Jason Thompson, and I think one other player to the Sixers to clear cap space, and along with that, a first-round pick and a swap, I think. I think it was a pick and a swap. Uh, And into that cap space, I believe the luminaries that were signed were Marco Bellinelli, Costa Kufus, and Rajon Rondo. And it was just like, you... You looked at that transaction at the time and thought, A, this has to be fake. Like, I need to call the people involved to make sure this is real. And B, what's going on in the Sacramento conference room where this is not only finalized, but even discussed for more than one minute before someone in the room is, is raised their hand and said, 
this is so stupid. There's all these other things we can do to clear cap space. We can't do this and throws themselves in front of it. I thought, to me, that Halliburton-Sabonis take is a little strong. Could it be that bad for them? It depends how Halliburton develops. I mean, if he hits his 100 percentile outcome, I think it's possible. And then, you know, the other end of it would probably be Sabonis would have to walk in free agency. One of the downsides to me, like trading Halliburton for Sabonis, it probably makes you a better team today. The question is, is that worth getting older getting worse in terms of contract situation because you've got somebody that you can extend a, a rookie extension or otherwise they're a restricted free agent. Whereas Sabonis is one of these guys who's in a tough spot that with the cap rising, the 20% raise you can offer him an extension, probably not worth him taking it, probably has to go to unrestricted free agency. And that's a big risk to take if you're in Sacramento. The only wild card is if they have enough cap space a year from now or mm. the next next summer to raise his salary up and extend off that. But that involves Harrison Barnes walking, and it also involves using up your cap space on not a player from another team, not an additive transaction. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 360 minutes with Fox and Sabonis on the floor, just three sixes, not very many, 115.9 points per 100 possessions. That's elite. That's like as good as the number one team offense in the league. Great. Defense. 117 points allowed per possessions. That's horrible and equivalent to way beyond the worst team defense in the NBA. Um, The Kings overall were 27th on defense last season. And I I think we can talk about why I think they'll be better than that this season, but I just don't know how you build a good defense around Fox and Sabonis. I think with good coaching and disciplined play, they could get up to like 18th. 17th on the real like if they have a really good defensive season and kind of get lucky and I think they were unlucky last year in ways we'll talk about and if that's all they can get if they're 22nd I think they could be a good offensive team I think the Kings could be a good offensive if you told me could the Kings be a top 10 offense in the NBA next year plausibly yeah it, that kind of profiles out to a 500 team which is way above their over under but out of the play in um, but that defensive number is is worrisome and if you look at their defense last year, KP, I mean, you know these numbers better than I do. In terms of free throws, turnovers, rebounding, like they weren't awful at any of those things. They were a pretty bad defensive rebounding team. Guess what? The minute they got Sabonis, they became an incredible defensive rebounding team with Sabonis on the floor. In terms of shots allowed, like where the shots come from, they were kind of average. They didn't allow a ton of threes or a ton of shots at the rim. They're kind of average across the board. The problem overall for the season is that they allowed the worst or best, I guess, three-point percentage uh, uh, by opponents in the entire league. Opponents hit like 38% of the threes against the, against the Kings. They allowed a high shooting percentage at the rim. And with Sabonis and Fox on the floor, teams shot 74% at the rim, which is so beyond the worst team defense in the league as to be unsustainable. And I guess the question for the Kings is, how much of their bad defense last year was how much of their defense being awful versus just run-of-the-mill bad was luck, like these teams just shot the lights out and it, sometimes you get unlucky, and how much of it was their own limitations as a, as a team both in scheme and personnel. And that's where that rim figure really really worries me because I, I, I don't know how they solve that. I think their starting five is probably going to be Fox, Herder, I bet they'll start Keegan Murray right off the bat. Barnes, Sabonis. 
I could see them trying to start Trey Lyles as a placeholder starter if they decide Keegan Murray's not ready. I just that rim number has has been bothering me since I since I found it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that isn't is subject to regressing to the mean like opponent three point shooting is. So that's why it's so so much more worrisome. Is it probably is a reflection of their skill? I mean, I think ideally, if I'm building a roster around Demonis Sabonis. I want him at center for all the offensive benefits that conveys. And then I need a power forward who can also be a presence at the rim. And Keegan Murray is an active defender. I think he's a somewhat underrated defender because he you know, tends to accumulate a fair number of steals and blocks. But he's not a guy who's going to come over from the weak side and really be like a deterrent in the paint. That's not his game. So I, I think a, a Murray Sabonis front court is going to be really potent offensively and maybe def- better defensively than a Lyle Sabonis front court would be, which is you know part of the reason I don't think that they will start Lyle. I think they would go with Murray. But uh, it, it's not going to be, he's not going to be able to compensate for DeMontis Sabonis' shortcomings in that regard. And I, I like one of their, I mean, and then off the bench, we'll see Davion Mitchell, Malik Monk, Lyles, Rashawn Holmes is one of the best backup centers in the league, period. He's a legit starter. I think that's a great thing to have. You just can't play him with Sabonis. I think they've toyed with that idea in the past. I don't see that really working in any kind of sizable sample size. And then you hopefully maybe you carry over a starter like Harrison Barnes maybe to keep that second unit afloat if you really need to. The issue you run into is, you would like to stagger Fox and Sabonis maybe a little bit. I, I don't think I can survive defensively with Fox and Monk on the floor. And Fox Mitchell Monk is just absolutely tiny. Malik Monk, one of their big offseason signings. I thought that was a good signing. So you start to run into these kinds of personnel limitations. But I do think offensively, the groups we're talking about make sense. Fox and Sabonis, I, I think are a really copacetic fit. I think they complement each other really well on the pick and roll. Sabonis is such a creative handoff guy, passer. Fox can do like the bob and weave thing. Like you go under the first screen, they change directions, they flip it the other way, and all of a sudden he's at the rim or he's taking a nice 15-footer. He shot, I think, 46% on long twos in the second half of last season. Uh, Sabonis is such a good passer that I, I think – Fox needs to play with a pick-and-roll partner like that, so all the playmaking burden is not on him. Herder, Murray, Barnes, like that's a lot of good shooting around them. Herder is a pretty good secondary ball handler. Barnes, I don't love with the ball in his hands. He's okay, but the outlines of a good offensive team are there, right? And I think one of the things that they definitely made a priority this offseason was improving their shooting. They ranked 25th in both made threes and three-point percentage last season. If you look strictly at returning players on every roster, now they're up to 20th and made threes, 22nd in percentage because the additions of Herter and Monk, both of whom made more threes than any player besides Buddy Heald, who went to Indiana in that Sabonis trade. And then Keegan Murray is going to be, I think, a plus shooter as a power forward right away in the league. So I think that's where, you know, that's going to give De'Aaron Fox that much more room to operate in addition to having Sabonis. I, I'm really betting on a breakout or a comeback season, I guess, from De'Aaron Fox after it was such a disappointing 21-22 campaign for him. But I think the interesting question to me is what what are they expecting? How are they going to use Davion Mitchell? And how good is he going to be in that role? Because, you know, it felt like for part of last year that, well, are they going to hand the keys to Davion Mitchell as they did after Fox got shut down? And then instead, you bring in two shooting guards, and unless you know you're playing to, planning to play some of those guys at small forward as a backup to Harrison Barnes, like is Mitchell strictly a backup point guard now? I, I'm I'm very curious how that's going to work out. 
He shot 31% from three, 31.6%. From, they round up to 32. I'm in a good mood. He shot 32% from three, Davion Mitchell. And he's he's a ball hawk defensively. I do think he might kind of be Avery Bradley 2.0 where he becomes overrated defensively because of you can see the pressure and the ferocity he plays with. And that really is a plus, but his size is such a limit a limitation for closing out on shooters for positional flexibility. I do like the lineup of Fox, Mitchell, Herder, Barnes, Sabonis. I like that lineup. I think that can fit pretty well. But, yeah, I, the shooting has been upgraded. I, I think they're um, a really strong shooting team. And Fox is interesting. I, I, I bought in early on De'Aaron Fox. I thought he had kind of a, a – a, certain charisma and leadership quality about him that I liked. His speed is self-explanatory. I thought his playmaking and defense would have advanced more by now. I think both have kind of stalled out. The defense has been super disappointing. His three-point shooting year by year is 31%, 37%, 29%, 32%, 29%. I just think it's really hard. It's He's got he's to gotta make you pay for going way, way under. Sabonis so mitigates that a little bit, but... I'm also betting on a bounce back from Fox. Like I thought the second half of his season last year was legit when he was putting up 30 regularly. But I, I just, he's got to become a better three-point shooter. I, I got to admit, I was pretty shocked when I looked at his basketball reference player page. and wait, He averaged 23 points a game last season. And that does, doesn't mean what it used to be because of the increases in pace and offensive efficiency. But uh, it was surprising to be so down about a player you know, who put that many points on the board. Yeah, when Fox first came into the league, it was about the time that uh, I wrote a piece about the importance of the off-the-dribble three, the pull-up three to pick-and-roll success and how basically, you know, if you looked at the best pick-and-roll or the leaders in off-the-dribble threes, it was basically all the best pick-and-roll players in the league except John Wall. So the question when De'Aaron Fox came into the league, that it was either can he get to that level as a shooter or can he be the John Wall style outlier is his, one of his predecessors at point guard at Kentucky. And, you know, there have been moments where he's done that, but certainly not with the consistency that Wall did pre-injuries. I am, I'm also, and Wall was, Wall was a force defensively before his body started to break down. And, and with it, I think his spirit defensively, just his size, he could block shots. He was powerful. Fox is just so skinny, and the effort the, the effort that you really want to see from a guy who's been anointed the franchise player ha- has not been there, and it just needs to be better. I'm just interested to see how they try to craft a defense out of this. You would suspect Sabonis will play in a drop-back scheme that's comfortable for him. Maybe come out a little higher because he's got good feet. He's got better, faster feet than people think. Maybe come out a little higher when necessary. And around that, you just make the sort of run-of-the-mill run rotations. I'm curious to see how much they experiment with switching if, if they try to become a switch-heavy team. I've heard rumblings they might try to do that. Um, I, I don't know if they have the person uh, – not with Sabonis. Would like switch one to four and leave Sabonis back. I don't know that they quite have the personnel to do that, but I think I think that's interesting. But I just see like – I just – I think there's a pretty hard and low ceiling on what this team can be defensively, and I don't see like a top five offense. But I do think – I think they're going to be in this play-in race, and I, and I do think those over-under numbers really underrate them. I think they're going to be a solid team I, and fun. I think they'll be fun. I think so too. I mean, 
once Fox and Sabonis were there for the reasons that you've elucidated, it was fun to watch. You put more shooty around that. And I, I just love watching Keegan Murray play. He was someone who popped in my statistical projections early last season before I really knew a lot about him because, you know, in his uh, freshman season at Iowa, he had been, you know, kind of a, a bit figure in their offense, which was totally Luka Garza-centric. And I, I think some people got down on him in the draft process. And it was interesting because, like, there was the period where people were wondering, oh, is this going to be the Kings again where they passed on the guy who becomes the guy in, in terms of Jaden Ivey? And then Keegan Murray played as well as he did at Summer League, and I think some of that faded, even though Ivy also played very well before he was injured. But Murray, sometimes people can get down because he's not necessarily the, the toolsiest player in the world. He's an older prospect, despite only playing two years at Iowa. But the guy just knows how to play basketball. He moves well without the ball. He's incredibly efficient in everything he does. I, I really enjoy watching him play. He was, he was great to watch in Summer League as well as at Iowa. What did you think of the the Kevin Herter trade? So um, the Kings traded Justin Holiday, uh, another player who I'm blanking on, and most importantly Harkless. from their perspective, Harkless, Mo Harkless. Um, I'm sorry, Mo Harkless. Um, <laughs> and most importantly, I think from the Kings' perspective, a, a first-round pick that is lottery protected in 2024, top 12 protected in 2025, top 10 protected in 2026, and then, if not conveyed, then becomes a second, I think. So, for now, it really limits what they can do via trade. They can't trade a pick until 2028, effectively, or two years after that pick conveys. And honestly, top 14 protected, top 12 protected, top 10 protected. We're talking about the Sacramento Kings, man. Like, it's, it's hard. Like, the smart money has always been on anything protected within the top 10, the Kings are going to end up keeping. But... But did you think that was good value for Herter on, on an extension? I think he's making about $15 million a year on his extension. I, I thought it was acceptable. I mean, uh, the same queasiness with the Kings trading protected future picks that you have. But like if Portland had made this move, I, I don't know if we would feel as concerned about it. Because if you're going to do that, do it for somebody who's 24 under long-term contract. And by the end of that, we're going to have hit the cap spike in all likelihood. I, I think the, the last year of that will be the first year of the new TV deal. And... 18 million is going to be like the mid-level exception at that point, right? Yeah, Herder's 24, Mitchell's 24, Fox is 24, Sabonis is 26. I didn't mind that trade for them. I do think salary-wise, they're they don't have as much flexibility in the next two or three summers as you would think if they bring back Harrison Barnes and then if they bring back Sabonis, they're kind of out of what is effectively usable cap space. They could have some, but not enough to do anything. And just it just raises the question of sort of what's the pivot point or pathway to this team becoming a great team but i don't think we need to ask that question about the kings the kings don't have to have a pathway to be a great team in fact they've had a pathway to be a great team for 15 years which is pick at the top of the draft or toward the top of the draft and that hasn't worked out well for them they would settle as their 40 wins or bust uh group of fans would settle for just being a functional team i think this has a chance to be a fun functional team and if you're right if you're right that one of these teams above them stumbles more than expected, they're going to be in the playing tournament. And once you're in, once you're in, you're in. You got a shot, right? Yeah. Can I can I also give you one random name to talk to talk about that uh, I don't think is going to come up on any other NBA podcast? Chima Maneke, who was I believe in the ACB last year, and is one of a handful of players that they've signed to contracts that have like these very small partial guarantees that are going to compete for a couple of roster spots in training camp. His projections are shockingly strong based on his European play. So he's kind of like a, 
an undersized power forward, like a 6'5", 6'6", power forward, but extremely productive when he's on the court. So this has got me excited for the Kings. I still think I'm going to predict them to finish 11th in the West, but uh, but but maybe not. I don't know. Now I'm torn. Okay, let's end with this. I we, so we have to go back to our ESPN All Hands on Deck Summit. I ch- I, I said uh, we had a great topic on NBA Today last week that I wanted you to weigh in on. In the wake of Jordan's Last Dance jersey, game worn, selling for I think it was 10 million dollars for a jersey. Um, NBA Today, they asked us all if, if we could have one game-worn jersey, one, cost whatever, just pretend you can get it, from any sport, any game, any time, any era, what would it be? And, of course, the, being me, this hijacked like five hours of my day I spent <laughs> thinking about this. Kevin Pelton, what was your choice? It, it hijacked less than five minutes of my day. Because the, the answer was obviously going to come from Seattle sports in my case. And as much as I considered something from Sue Bird's career, as much as I considered something from the Peyton Kemp Sonics and you know the Seahawks of, of the early 2010s, the answer has got to be Ken Griffey Jr.'s jersey from the slide to beat the Yankees in Game 5 in the 1995 AL Division Series. The first time the Mariners had ever made the playoffs, first time they'd won a playoff series, and uh, a very young Kevin Pelton was in the right field bleachers at that game. So certainly a, a formative and memorable sports moment for me. That's fantastic. I, uh, I can picture the slide. I can picture the game. I went through, here were some of the candidates that went through my head over several hours. Um, Magic Johnson, 1992 All-Star Game. Oh, that's good. When he comes back from the HIV diagnosis and wins MVP. Jordan Flu Game, which I dismissed as too obvious. Um, I, the Mets were and still are in some part of my soul the most important team to me in, in my life. The Mets were a family member to me in my teenage years and my 20s. I, I watched every single game. I lived and died with them. I just couldn't find like an iconic game to the point that I almost went Mike Piazza game one of the Subway Series, even though the Mets lost that game. And Piazza, I don't think, did anything like really great in that game. But that was, if you're talking about sort of what sports makes you feel, that was the most gutting, upsetting moment for me in my life as a sports fan. And yet I loved that team and that collection of players so much that I, I thought about that. Um, but I thought about Diana Taurasi, very deep cut, Final Four against Texas, her junior year where she single-handedly led this group of freshmen to a win over a way better team. And I, I ultimately couldn't pick any. You're shaking your head. You didn't like any of my picks so far other than Magic you liked. No, I was curious. Uh, like, the 86 Mets didn't come into play because I feel like there's an obvious 86 Mets jersey from Game so 6. I thought I thought Mookie Wilson, Game 6, or Ray Knight crossing the plate, Game 6. So that, that a couple of, and you could pick any number of other things from Game 6. A couple of things against that. Number one, Gooden was my favorite player as a kid. So he doesn't really factor into the pivotal Game 6 moments, at least as I'm going through the top of my head. Number two, Mookie and Ray kind of memorialize, it's, that's really the Buckner moment. And, and, and picking a jersey that surrounds a player's defining mistake hurts and number three 
my father is from New Hampshire and is an absolute diehard, insane Red Sox fan. So that is like picking a moment that memorializes the low point or one of several, I guess, before 2004 of his professional fandom. I, tr- I tried to come up with the Mets one. I couldn't find one. All, all those are fair, but I think the most iconic jersey from 86 Game 6 is the one that Keith Hernandez went into the clubhouse and stripped off thinking the game was over before the Mets come, came back to win. And Hernandez would be, he's become such a character in Mets land that that would be a good one. So you know what I ended up doing? I thought to myself, what was what was the greatest game I ever saw? Not in, even in, so I thought of LeBron game seven, chase down block game, because I was at that game and Same. that, that yeah. may well be the, and the, the best thing I see in person ever in my life. But LeBron is like, really, I'm going to pick a LeBron jersey? It's too obvious. What was the, as even as a neutral fan, what was the greatest game I ever saw? What was the most enthralling, invigorating, you're nervous and anxious and jumping around the room, calling your friends on the landline because that's when this game took place, <laughs> to watch it together because it evolved into this magical happenstance game. Perfect antagonists, perfect back and forth action. They shot like 60% combined in the game. Incredibly high stakes in a one and done tournament. Just iconic game, perfect enemies, different styles, perfect finish. And I went Christian Leitner, Duke, Kentucky, 92. And and like any good-hearted person, I was cheering against Duke. I would cheer against Duke now. I was cheering for the ragtag Kentucky team coming off the academic penalties and all that that shot threes at a rate that was unheard of back then. Cheering against Duke. And yet Leitner... Makes that shot. He doesn't miss a field goal or a free throw the entire game. And just think of the images, right? Antonio Lang falls over on the court pumping his fist. Thomas Hill claps his hands behind his head, weeping on the bench. The team, it's, I just think, I think that's the greatest game I've ever seen, at least on television. I think, I can't think of a better game than that. That's definitely an iconic moment, maybe the iconic moment in college basketball. I, I then thought of the uh, the Syracuse-UConn six-overtime games is was maybe the most tense that I remember watching. Uh, although the the Johnny Flynn jersey, I don't know how well that would have aged. What well, isn't McNamara in that game? Isn't wouldn't that be no. a Jerry McNamara game, jersey? Or is really? that a different is that a different Syracuse run it, through the Big East tournament? Different. There, it appears their star in that game was actually Paul Harris who had 29 points and 22 rebounds now that I look at the box score. But uh, And and I mean KP, there's literally a 30 for 30 documentary called I Hate Christian Leitner. Yes. That, that's a movie. That's we made. ESPN made this movie. Everybody it, hated Duke. Everybody hated Christian Leitner. I was. I hated that they won, and yet the game was so magical. And if you're going to get a jersey from that game, that's the one to get. As, you, as soon as you said antagonists, I knew exactly which game you were referring to. But then I'd have to hang a Leitner Duke jersey in my office, which I don't know if I. But honestly, though, Leitner, I'm still fascinated by him. I love. I hate Christian Leitner. I love the documentary. I I would I if I could interview like one guy about his dream team experience, I might pick Christian Leitner as like the lone college outsider on the dream team that they all probably abused and made fun of. I don't know. I, I enjoy his personality. So that was my pick. Not a bad pick, right? Totally understandable. Okay, Kings fans, 40 wins, baby. 40 wins in 10th place. Let's go. Kevin Pelton, uh, thanks for the time, and I will see you literally in two minutes downstairs. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. 
One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. All right, let's welcome in one of my favorite guests, a guy who knows his team and his market about as well, if not better than anyone on earth, John Krasinski from The Athletic. We're going to talk Wolves. We're going to talk what might be the most anticipated season of Minnesota Timberwolves basketball since KG, I think, maybe the Jimmy Butler season, but I think this one even more so. First, before I before I hit you with the question, how are you? I'm great, Zach. Thanks for, being, thanks for having me here. Uh, ready to get into it. Hoop season is almost here, man. Let's get going. Um, before we start... I ended the Kevin Pelton segment with a question that we batted around on NBA Today last week that I just, I love this question. It ruined an entire five-hour period of my day last week because I was thinking so hard about it. If you could have, in light of the MJ Last Dance jersey going for $10 million, if you could have any jersey, game-worn, it's got to be game-worn, any player, any sport, any period of time, what is John Krasinski, Minnesota native, Minnesota nice, what are you going with? Yeah, I I I would too like to take about 10 hours to really, you know, kind of think about this and labor over it and and make my decision, but um in a pinch with where I'm at, there's one that really stands out and because I'm on this big time pod and from a little place called Minnesota that sometimes doesn't get the recognition across the uh the the sporting landscape, I'm going to rep for my for my squads and I grew up here as people can tell from my accent I'm Minnesotan through and through and so the for me the answer is 1991 game 6 Kirby Puckett Twins versus Braves uh puts the team on his back hits the home run in extra innings and we'll see you tomorrow night Jack Buck sets up game 7 that the Twins win in the World Series Zach Lowe we have not had many uh, sporting triumphs in Min- in the Minnesota area outside of the Minnesota Lynx who've done great um, for the last 40 years. And so the Minnesota Twins winning the World Series, that Kirby Puckett game, it goes down in Minnesota sports lore as one of just the you know penultimate games that you could ever imagine. And so um, yeah, he was always my favorite growing up, my favorite player, and everyone loved Kirby. And then to see him put that team on his back the way that they did and helped deliver a championship for a championship-starved market, that's got to be the choice for me. That is that's a that is a great pull. I, I love. I, and is that the is that the game seven they win? Jack Morris one zero. So game six was Kirby stardom to set up game seven. Yeah. Jack Morris, yep, went went the distance, um, ten innings to win it one zero. One the maybe the greatest World Series game ever. Ten innings. Is such a badass thing that I, <laughs> oh, I wonder if that will ever happen. I mean, I don't nope. follow baseball much no anymore, chance. but that, that's just so bad. Like, no, I'm I'm going ten. Don't take me out of the game. Um, does Kirby have an iconic catch in that series? I feel like yep. there's an iconic same game. Kirby. Same game. S- same game. Game six. Um, he it, it's 
just blasted to the gap in left center. He goes up and you know he's a small guy. He or he was a small guy, maybe five eight or five nine, and he, I mean he leaped in the air. It felt like when I was you know I, I was at the time twelve years old. I felt like he leaped ten feet in the air to to grab the grab the ball right before it hit the 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 wall or the big plexiglass right above the wall, and so that saved a run. And and then he hit the he hits a home run later and so uh, heroics everywhere for Kirby in that game and he and he crashes into the baggie right like that was the famous sort of like it looked uh, like a big baggie or no well the bag the baggie was in right field he was, oh, that okay. was in left center so he didn't hit the baggie there but yeah um but yeah he hit the plexiglass that was just above the uh, oh the, I can the see it now I can yep. see it now so my mm-hmm. da- I think it was my dad's college roommate or like post-college housemate or something was from Minnesota and sent us during that playoff run a package containing two Homer hankies among other things and I hung I just I was a sports fan I was a Mets fan the twins were my team but I loved stuff like that and hanging from the ceiling in my childhood bedroom were a Homer hanky tacked to the ceiling so it was like hanging down like a championship banner and a terrible towel next to it because my mother grew up in Pittsburgh. At the Homer Hanky was like a crazy. I got you. I bet you have at least one in the house right now. Yes, we have one. Well, my actually my my dad has it at his house, but uh, for safekeeping. But um, uh, yeah, they were iconic. And at the t- remember now nowadays you go to an NBA game. There's T-shirts or there's towels or whatever. It's it, they're ubiquitous. But back then it was pretty unique. There weren't many of those things handed out and so I I mean that was what everyone talked about oh look at Minnesota with the white metrodome roof and then you have these white hankies waving in the air and the, the the outfielders have no idea how to pick up the white ball against all of this background and it worked out it was a great home field advantage but that was something wholly Minnesotan and we'll uh, we take that uh, as some sort of innovation uh, in the realm of sports for for us sad sack losers here in Minnesota that never ever win any other championships. Well, you may you say sad sack losers, and I was out to dinner with a few people last night here in L.A. and the Bills, whoever whoever the Bills yeah. were destroying, was on. And I and I mentioned to a couple of my dinner mates as a neutral sports fan in the '90s, I rooted so hard for the Bills to win one of the four straight Super Bowls they lost, and my rooting got more and more vociferous as they kept losing. So like Super Bowl three and four, I was like, can this team just get off the schneid? And then we started talking about, like, without thinking about it at all, if you were to do a draft of what individual franchise winning a championship would mean the most to the city that that franchise is in, I was like, Bills have got to be a top three pick in that draft. Someone, forgive me, I don't really follow the three other major sports that much anymore. I have a broad understanding of what's going on. Although NHL realignment has lost me. So somewhere when the Winnipeg Jets came back, I was like, I officially have no idea where NHL teams are anymore. Zero. The Bills have got to be a top three pick. Well, I, 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 that would be a fun draft to do, but I, I can't. The, 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 that would mean everything to Buffalo. Hundred percent, yeah, and and it's very similar to the Vikings here because the Bills lost four in a row, so that trumps. But the Vikings have lost the only four Super Bowls that they were ever in, and they were it were all in the '60s and '70s, and they had these iconic purple people eater teams, and and um and they're a huge part of the fabric of Minnesota and Minneapolis and St. Paul. But 
they are known for not being able to get over the hump, just like the Bills. And so I would put the Vikings up high in that draft as well, but I think the Bills would definitely usurp them just because they're the only show in town there, and we see how they're throwing their fans are throwing themselves through tables and stuff. What would they do if they won a Super Bowl? I, I I can't even imagine. Like all my Philly buddies were telling me for years and years, you don't understand, Zach. When the Eagles win the Super Bowl, we're going to burn the city down because <laughs> yeah. the if you rated the four sports teams in Philly, it's Eagles, giant gap down to Phillies probably, and. And as you said, Buffalo, I think, just has the Bills and the Sabres, Sabres right? So yeah. you're, you're already cutting it from four to two. Like, I just don't even know what would happen in Buffalo. If they, if, that would be a fun draft to do, like the 10 most meaningful potential geographic championships. Also a draft. To, maybe we should just turn this into John and Zach just draft random Let's Because you said, you said purple people eaters. And I, one day I want to do a draft of the best team or unit, like offense, defense-based nicknames in the history of sports because Purple People Eaters is up there. Steel Curtain is up there. And last night, uh, somebody, Kevin Pelton was at dinner, brought up the Legion of Boom. That, yes. is, that is an all-timer. But I'll tell you, I got the number. If I had the number one pick, I'll tell you what I'm taking in that draft. Go for it. Five Slamma Jamma. That's oh, still that's, that's still my all time favorite it's for beautiful. the Houston Cougars of Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. It's it's, it's you it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. iconic. Yeah. Well, hey, the, the the Wolves might have a, a nickname that we can go over later if you want to, and I'll, and we can run it by you and see if you like it. So, uh, for the for the big front court. Ooh. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. The ostensible reason we are doing this podcast. <laughs> um, I called it the most anticipated season of Wolves basketball since prime KG. So let's say 2004, maybe 2005 coming off the conference finals run in 04. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. I, I've said it a, a few times. This is my, I think, 19th season covering this team. Um, and I do think it is easily the most anticipated since that KG Western Conference Finals, Sam and Spree run, you had the the three of them on the cover of Sports Illustrated and things like that. Um, certainly, it was at a a a fever pitch then, but still, I think a little bit unexpected the success that they had, kind of um, to that they were that good and 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 made that kind of a run. Uh, here uh, this year, it's different from the Jimmy Butler year because if you think back. Uh, Tibbs was coming off of a 31-win season in his first season as coach, did not deliver the the leap that every Timberwolves fan was hoping for when you hire Tom Thibodeau to coach Towns and Levine and Wiggins, and this is going to, you know, they're up and going. They, they, they didn't really kind of plan, pan out. So you go get Jimmy, and there was a lot of excitement, certainly, but there was still just kind of a little ripple of, how is this going to work? And and is this absolutely what we believe in? With this team that's coming in this season, um, it's off the charts enthusiasm locally because you have uh, a, a, an established guy in Carl Anthony Towns coming off one of his best seasons. You have uh, Rudy Gobert coming in. It's a polarizing deal, but fans here have talked themselves into it. They're excited about three-time defensive player of the year. Um, all this, he's coming in. And then you have Anthony Edwards, who um, is just an ultra-popular figure locally. Um, and and he has kind of captured the imagination 
of the fans and really connected with them on a visceral level. And the way I say it is very similar to when Randy Moss came to the Vikings and and really jump-started that team. Anthony Edwards has had the same effect. Um, and then finally, Zach, I think one thing that basketball fans are really picking up on here is that for the first time in a very, 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 very long time, it seems like the leadership of this organization is on super solid ground. You have Tim Connolly, who has only been here a little bit, but has a long resume of success in Denver, leading the front office. You have Chris Finch, who is very popular and is really connected as a coach. And then you have these new owners who are kind of like out there, but they're showing enthusiasm and investing and 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 doing things that you know Glenn Taylor is much more kind of laid back and 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 is not out there the way that Mark Laurie and Alex Rodriguez are. So the 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 three of those things kind of combined just I think have people believing that you can you can put some faith into what this team is building more so than than any time I can remember since I've covered this team. Okay, so John. It's 11 a.m. in Minnesota. It is. As you were saying all of that stuff about (laughs) stable ground, uh, uh, optimism. Yep. Was there a lightning strike? Did you hear any loud noises? Did anything break on Twitter? Did anything bad happen to the Timberwolves franchise as you were saying that? (laughs) To my knowledge, not yet. And yet is the operative word because when's that other shoe going to drop as we have covered on this podcast several times. So, yeah, I... I, as a chronicler of this organization, as this franchise, am doing the looking over my shoulder now all of the time because you're just waiting for when that happens because there are too many good things that appear to be happening for this franchise that something has to be right around the corner for sure. Um, Let's review. Wolves' seventh seed last year win the play-in tournament. Great comeback win over the Clippers. Spirited... 4-2 4-2 loss in the first round against the Grizzlies, portending what could be a rivalry that lasts for a long time. Even the dads got involved. Carl Towns' dad versus John Morant's dad was was a delightful subplot. Crazy comebacks, most of which uh, Minnesota was the victim of in that series. Crowd, I mean, I wasn't at those games, but we talked about it. Like I wanted to be at those games. It seems like the, the crowd was just absolutely rabid. Offseason comes, they trade everything for Rudy Gobert to pair him with Carl Anthony Towns in the front court. They sign Kyle Anderson, and then there's some some bit players coming in like Bryn Forbes and Austin Rivers, and they retain pretty much most of the other important players on the team last year. I mean, v- Jared Vanderbilt was a good placeholder starter, Malik Beasley off the bench. We know these guys played important roles, but they're ultimately replaceable um, for the Wolves. And uh, NBA Rank, I don't know if you saw, NBA Rank came out today on ESPN numbers t- uh, 100 through 26. Uh, I I don't vote in NBA rank just mostly because of laziness. Like all the emails just flood my email box and I'm like, this is too much. I can't do it. So I've, I've opted out. But of note, Mr. Krasinski, there is one team, one, that will have three of the as yet to be revealed top 25 players in ESPN's NBA rank. And that team is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Woo-hoo-hoo. Anthony Edwards has cracked in the, the top, top 25, 25. Wow. of NBA rank, along with Rudy Gobert 
And uh, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, who are no-brainers, I think, for the top mm-hmm. 25. Towns obviously made All-NBA over Gobert last year. The Wolves were third in offense, 13th in defense, number two in offense after January 1st where they just lit everything on fire, number 13 on defense despite uh, a sort of uh, – what is the phrase I'm looking for here? Um, smoke and mirrors. Yes, smoke and mirrors, super aggressive, blitz everything, hope for the best kind of scheme that they were well-equipped to play. I think that's all going to be revamped this year with the presence of Gobert in ways we can talk about. And and there is reason for encouragement on that end that they can get better or at least stabilize at 13th. And I think there's reason to believe, despite all the hand-wringing, some justified over how is Rudy Gobert going to fit. I thought Cat was a center. Can can Jaden McDaniel shoot well enough for those three to be on the court together a lot, blah, 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 or really those two with him and Gobert. Um, I think there's reason to believe their offense can sustain at a top five or close level and that this team is going to be absolutely in the conversation to be a top four seed in the Western Conference with home court advantage. And then the playoffs come TBD after that. But I... I I look at this team, I think they're going to be really good. And your eyes went wide when Ant, when I told you Ant was going to be in the top 25. Yeah, it, it did. Um, I, I was wondering when he was going to crack it. I do believe that watching him these first two years, you knew that he's on that trajectory. But is he ready yet? I've talked to people. I've written about it at The Athletic. Um, there are people that are very, very encouraged about the work that they've seen him put in this offseason and getting ready for – what they hope is a third year leap like John Morant made last year and and a lot of like a lot of great ones do. So if that is the case, like if if that holds true and he does make that leap into a top 25 player uh, on this roster, now all of a sudden, I think a lot of the concerns about Rudy Gobert's fit are abated a little bit because uh you can make the argument that Rudy Gobert has never played with a team as with as much talent around him as he's going to have. If he's going to have two other all-star caliber players in Townsend Edwards, Jaden McDaniels helping him with the defense, um, D'Angelo Russell shot making, passing, pick and roll. I, I think it's it, that starting five is a pretty formidable group. And if they can stay together and stay healthy and figure out the cat go bear dynamic and how you kind of distribute things. Um, I think they're going to be a handful is definitely in the regular season. We'll see about the playoffs, but I think that they're going to win a lot of games in the regular season and really position themselves to, to make a run here in the playoffs and make some noise. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. 
passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's just clarify what we both agree is going to be the no-brainer starting five for this team. D'Angelo Russell still here. Still here. And I think in this role, now his future um, on an expiring contract with this team is uncertain. Um, They really don't have any incentive in terms of cap space right now to not bring him back because Gobert ate up all of that. Uh, So D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards at the two, McDaniels, Cat, Gobert. Jaden McDaniels shot 32% from three last year, 10 of 20 in the playoffs and looked, looked kind of, kind of, you know, aggressive and confident by the end of that series against Memphis. Um, for all the attention on the cat go bear fit, which we will talk about offensively and defensively, I think the J Mac go bear pairing is going to be very interesting. Do they have enough shooting? And the wild card in that I think is, does Edwards make a leap as a three point shooter? Um, spoiler alert, I write a column every year, my five most intriguing players for the season. Normally, Anthony Edwards would be too obvious and too good of a player to be in that column, too established as a obvious rising star to be in that column. He's going to be in the column because, and you know this too, going all in on Gobert at age 30 on the contract he's on was obviously a huge bet on Gobert. It was almost equally so a bet on Edwards becoming a top 25 player. When you talk about top 25, that's you're in the all-star game and you're a borderline all-NBA player. Like That's how good that is. It was a bet on him getting there as a perimeter scorer, passer, which I think is, is a dimension of his game that really needs to be improved fast, and shot maker now. Not in three years, now. And I think... And I watched about four hours of film on him, offense and defense, the other day. I still have some to go. I think that bet's a good bet. I think he, I think he's going to be that good. And just one stat to kind of whet everyone's appetite. I think he shot like 34 35% from three on, on, seven, yep. on a high volume. 41 point something percent on catch and shoot threes. 32, I think, on pull up threes. That said... First of all, the the ratio of those was three catch-and-shoots per game, five pull-ups per game. I'd like to see that inch closer to even, and if it does, that catch-and-shoot number looks real. And if you break down his off-the-dribble threes into three kind of different segments, and I watched all of them, pick-and-roll threes when they drop back on him, he looks really comfortable pulling up for that shot. Step-back threes. I think he had the six most step-back threes in the NBA – and I There's think, according to Second Spectrum, he hit 36% of them. That's good. That's a good late clock shot. The ones that I think need to be not mothballed, but limited and 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 turned into passes, cuts, something, 
are they just dribble around with nothingness and launch like an ISO three, not a step back, not a calculated kind of step back. But I think the shot making is going to come. We'll talk about the defense later. The playmaking is the interesting one to me. What do you what do you break down Ant's sort of role as playmaker on this team? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I do think that at, for all the talk about Gobert and Cat, and they're going to start together and they're probably going to finish together, there's going to be big stretches of games where Finch puts either one one of the two of them out there. And so I think the natural pairing is D'Angelo Russell and Gobert together because Russell works great with the dive man um, on the pick and roll and and Carl Anthony Towns is more of a pick and pop guy and Ant and Cat work well together. And so I do think that you're going to see big stretches of games where it's Ant and Cat played paired together and that is when he presumably D'Angelo Russell is taking a breather and 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 Ant is going to go into more of a playmaking mode. And I do think that he sees the floor pretty well, but he still is learning where exactly the the hot read is. If for an NFL, when you face a blitz, you got to know where your hot guy is and, and throw it to that uh, area, or you're, or you're stuck. Edwards is still when they when they bring a quick double on him or they throw a little bit more aggressiveness at him. He's ha- he has had a hard time recognizing where his out is, and so I think that they have been working a lot this summer just on that recognition aspect. I think he can pass. I do. I think he the the physical act of getting a ball to an open teammate, of seeing the floor, of doing those things. He has that ability. It really is just coming down to his anticipation skills and understanding where the help is going to be coming defensively and where that uh, opens up areas to exploit. And he oftentimes would have turnovers in those situations last year because he didn't recognize it quick enough. And that part of it has to improve. And if it does, his physicality, his strength, his ability to make those step backs and those off-balance jumpers, I mean, it's unguardable. Like when he was rolling in the Memphis series, there was nothing they could do with him at all. And that's a weapon that this team has never really had in its arsenal, even dating back to Cassell and Sprewell and Garnett and all that. They've never had like that get your own shot, you know, do whatever you want and there's nothing you can do to stop me type of a player. And I think Anthony Edwards can be that guy. I agree with you that he will become a good passer. I think he's already he can pass. Like if you yes. watch a reel of his pick and roll plays, it will include some like lefty cross court in the shooting pocket to the corner shooter passes off the dribble, which is a really hard pass to make. It'll also include a lot of like, oh, that guy slipped open and you missed him. Oh, that guy popped open and you missed him. And you didn't really have a good alternative to hitting him. It'll also include some passes that are a foot high or a foot low or a foot out of bounds. All that stuff is 21-year-old guy stuff. I look at those lefty cross-court passes on time and on target. I'm like, okay, he's got it. It just needs to come more consistently, this and that. I also think, and you saw this in the Memphis series, a way to unlock him as a playmaker a little more sort of organically, he hunted Morant a lot in that series in in sort of small, small pick and rolls as both ball handler and screener. And he's certainly got the size to become a post player, iso player, back down player when he gets smaller guys on him. 
He didn't really have that in his game last year. It was more like rise up for an 18-footer. If he can get to the point where he's comfortable enough with his back to the basket, like you see all these guys get to, Tatum, Brown, as like recent examples for the Celtics, where he can draw help, that's sort of an easy, easy pass for him. But I'll tell you what I got most excited about watching Anthony Edwards film Mr. Krasinski. Please do. He talked on NBA Today, and we chuckled at him, that he thought he was the best defensive player in the NBA. Yes. He's not the best defensive player in the NBA. He's not ever going to be the best defensive player in the NBA. But after watching hours of film of him on defense, I'm going to throw it out there. I think as early as this season, if he dials in, it's probably premature this season, but somewhere in the next three or four seasons, he's making an all-defense team. He is that good defensively when he dials in. He is their best on-ball defender now, full stop, against pretty much any position you can imagine. Off-ball is where he sort of is a little cavalier, a little inattentive, a little, I think, almost overconfident in his ability to just recover in a snap because of how athletic he is. He has incredible footwork, balance, timing, strength, physicality. I think he's making an all-defensive team sooner rather than later. If he really commits to it, I think he can be that good. Well, yeah, and I think you hit on it, Zach, is that he is one of those star players who wants it. Like, he, if you talk to coaches many times over, even as a rookie, but definitely this last year, I want Luka, I want Harden, I want jaw I want these he wants those opportunities and those matchups and he wants to be viewed as a two-way player and that is such a big part of that but it was so fun to watch Zach uh there will be times throughout the season and in those playoffs where maybe maybe it was jaw who got him isoed and thought here we go I'm gonna break this guy down and I'm gonna get to the rim like I always do and it's not gonna be a problem and Ant was able to move his feet and use his strength enough to keep in front of the of of a much quicker ball handler and they were shocked by it they just did not know what to do with it and so one-on-one you're right he absolutely has the ability to sink his teeth into a perimeter offensive player and lock them up like that's possible. Now we also saw in the Memphis series um, game four. I can't remember. Uh, no game five where he went for the steal uh, late. That's and, right. I forgot about that. And, and, and that's again, youthful vigor, ego, whatever it was. And, and it turned out and it really bit them. So that's the, those are the kinds of things that the wolves want him to shore up this year because they already really do believe in him one-on-one mano a mano we can put Edwards on anyone and feel comfortable with it it's just do you stay attentive do you do the right things off the ball and now he's got Rudy Gobert uh, at you know at, to have his back and and so I think the combination for Rudy to play both with Edwards and McDaniels two guys who are very accomplished perimeter defenders it's going to be a whole different world for him from those turnstiles in Utah. And I think that's what has a lot of people in Minnesota really optimistic about where this thing could go. Yeah, Ant is also one of those wings, and this is a sneaky, valuable part of team defense. He's one of those wings that is a deterrent at the rim. When he decides to fly in there as a helper, he can block shots and get up into people vertically. 
The other, th- the thing he really, the most glaring weakness is rebounding. He's an yes. awful rebounder. He doesn't box anybody out. This team was 29th in defensive rebounding last year. They were 29th in fouls and second in forcing turnovers. All that was baked into their blitzing, helter-skelter scheme. And I think when you look at that 29th, second, 29th, I think the bad outweighed the good of playing that way, particularly when they got to competition with a lot of passing and shooting that could just sort of pick apart that style. And frankly, I'm not really worried about that because they're just going to scrap that. No, they're not going to scrap it. It's going to be part of their game. But with Gobert there, they can do so many different things defensively. And I'm, I actually think this will be a solid to very good defensive team. My, my concern is when they tried to get too cute schematically last year, they often screwed up because they don't have a ton of like really intuitive high IQ defenders on their team. And I'm talking about when they would try to switch towns out of the pick and roll as his guy was going up to screen. Sometimes they would get confused. Guys would get open. And I do think Gobert Towns requires you to be a little bit um, malleable on defense. Like I think on some nights, They'll flip the matchup so that Towns guards centers if, if they're just more comfortable for him to guard. Um, and and maybe he blitzes, maybe he drops, whatever. And Gobert lurks there as, like, the time lord of Minnesota. Like, who's the worst offensive player on the perimeter? I just won't guard you, and I'll be lurking. Then there will be times where Rudy will guard the main pick-and-roll screener if that's a center, drop back. Towns will be on a stretch four, and I think that will test his ability to sort of rotate and recover and all of that. But I think defensively, this will work well enough. And offensively, I'm not worried about the cat go bear fit. And I can, my, my main reason is number one, the Chris Finch factor, because there's a lot of concern about, well, what is cat going to be doing if Gobert is the main screener? Is he just going to be standing on the perimeter doing nothing? And my first thought was, well, I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world. He is the greatest shooting big man of all time, him or Dirk. And number two, Chris Finch is way more creative than that. So anytime Cat sets an off-ball screen, like a pin down in the corner, a flare screen, a back screen, that's gold for Minnesota. And that's where Chris Finch lives because – People don't want to leave Cat when he's the screener. He's too good of a shooter. The other thing is, okay, so D'Lo runs a pick and roll with Rudy Gobert. Boom, swing it to Ant. He runs a, a wing pick and roll with Cat. Like, there's so much dynamism built into that. And then you have Gobert catching lobs down on the baseline once you break down the defense and puncture it and get them in rotation. And he's just way, 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 way better than that. Uh, better at that than Jared Vanderbilt was in that role. I just think – I think – this offense is going to be a top five, six offense. Again, I'm not, I'm not worried about it in the regular season. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the keys is, like, ultimately, they've really essentially just replaced Jared Vanderbilt with Rudy Gobert. And I cannot tell you, and look, Vanderbilt, a warrior, plays his tail off like just a huge part of the energy of that smoke and mirrors defense, like the rebounding, all of it, the defending, great, great, great. But a million times we watched last season him try to catch the ball in traffic and just could not do it. Like, he either couldn't go up for it. He wasn't a lob threat, really. And then whenever he would roll to the rim or or dive from the dunker spot or whatever, there were so many times he would fumble the ball out of bounds. And Rudy will not do that. They will absolutely exploit that mismatch 
time and time again, which they were not able to do with Jared Vanderbilt. And so I think like that will work. And I also am actually looking forward to seeing how Towns adapts offensively because there was uh, like three seasons ago where he's shooting nine threes a game. Um, and last year he I sh- I, he shot somewhere around four or five a game. And that was pretty low. He really was incorporating a lot more of the pump fake from the perimeter and drive to the basket. That was more of a defining part of his game last year. I think he's going to have to shoot more this year. And I think he will find the efficiency that he really loves by incorporating seven, eight three-pointers a game and really kind of stretching that defense out. And um, so, yeah, and he can pass it well enough, too, to keep the ball moving. And so I, I do think that any kind of offensive issues, the only offensive issue that I'm actually really intrigued to see how they kind of address is Rudy Gobert is not a guy who's going to come in and say, I'm okay setting screens and getting garbage putbacks. Like he wants the ball, like he wants touches. And so how does that incorporate with Russell, with Edwards, with Towns? And and does he play the good soldier? Does he does he complain about things if he's not getting enough touches. Like, I think that's a part of his personality that we haven't really explored at length. And we'll see how that all fits together just in terms of the overall harmony. But from a skill set standpoint, I think they complement each other really well. Yeah. My concerns are more cat chasing around stretch fours when he has to do that on defense and just go bare in the playoffs. Yeah. I, you have to be able to do something if we throw you the ball. And we you can't just let these teams switch Reggie Jackson onto you willy-nilly and not make them pay for it. Now, the surrounding talent is such that they have other vehicles to, to make them pay, the other team pay for things like that. As far as his touches, look, man, I'm sorry. Like, I'll be in the meeting with Chris Finch if you want. Like, <laughs> you make $40 million to be the defensive player of the year. You're You're good at what you do offensively. You want the ball more, man? I'm sorry. We got this dude, this dude, and this dude. And maybe when only one of those dudes is on the floor with you. And I do think one of the things about having four good offensive players, two two perimeter, two big, is when the chips are down, you could have two of those four on the floor at all times and limit minutes for Torian Prince or, you know, uh, 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 Noel, McLaughlin, whoever you want to sort of not cut them out of the rotation but limit their minutes a little bit. And slow-mo is an interesting piece, by the way. We didn't bring him yes. up yet. He he factors into that staggering you mentioned because I think he's just, he's got to be out there for the cat yes. only minutes. That's, that's the fit. Yes. And other than that, I think they really like the idea of throwing in a high IQ, unselfish guy like that around all of their sort of superstar level scoring. But um, – it, it like Rudy, just do what you do, man. You'll you'll you're making forty million. You're ma- you'll make an All NBA team. That's what you do. We're not throwing the ball to you in the post. Like that's not what you're able to really do, unless it's a mismatch um, in the playoffs. And by the way, Cat, I'm tired, and I say this with good nature. It seems like every month he <laughs> appears on some media outlet somewhere, and is like. Does anyone understand that I'm the best offensive big man ever? I'm the best shooting big man ever. I why do I why do is why am I not getting the credit for this? Like, yo, you're arguing with ghosts. We all know you're the greatest all-around scoring big man, maybe of all time. We're you're in the conversation. We all know you're 50, 40, 85 every year. You're right there with Dirk as 
the greatest shooting big man ever and the most well-rounded scoring big man ever. You're arguing with straw men. I would like to hear you talk about defense and rebounding, not fouling yourself into foul trouble every playoff game, not throwing blind hook passes over your head for your seventh turn. Like, talk about that stuff because, dude, we all know. Like, we, we, you're, we, you got it. You don't have to give yourself credit anymore. We're giving you credit. Well, here's the one thing that's really interesting about both Cat and Gobert. You're right, Zach. I mean, I think like the NBA intelligentsia, like the the people who are plugged in understand both A, how amazing and efficient and incredible offensively Cat is, and B, just how impactful Rudy Gobert is in general on regular season winning. Like people get that. But there is also a very strong undercurrent among players among casual NBA fans of disrespect toward both of them um, in terms of like, well, you know, Cat, you haven't won anything. You're soft. And so that's what he hears all the time. Rudy hears, well, you can't win in the playoffs and you can't make a jumper. And and so they they have faced their both faced their fair share of criticism and doubters about this. And that obviously that just comes with the territory. But I do think that Cat right now, from what I can understand, under it has a feeling more so than ever in his career that he just has to win to to address some of these trolls that are out there, and he hasn't won enough and um by himself, and now he has an opportunity with real talent around him to win at a really high level, and then it will be oh yeah, he, this guy really is that good. And maybe some of that respect that he wants from his peers that he's not getting or from other ghosts that are out there that he's inventing, maybe that will come around too. I think this team is going to be really good. I, I think too. their over-under is 48 and a half. I would, hammer, I would hammer the over on that. And you look at the West, and in my head, I just sort of have, have penciled in with not thinking, not thinking super hard about it. Top four wins, just wins. In some order of Clippers, Warriors, Suns, despite the vibes not being immaculate in Phoenix right now, <laughs> and, and, and Nuggets, right? Mm-hmm. And then below that, and this is maybe not fair to the Grizzlies, who were second in the West last year and won 56 games despite John Morant missing like 26 or 25 or something. Mm-hmm. Minnesota, Memphis, Dallas. That gets you to seven right away. One of those teams is already in the play-in, and we haven't even talked about New Orleans or the Lakers or any other. Portland has ambitions of something. I don't know what. Um, I think, and again, this is going to say, I think think Minnesota might have the best chance of those three teams, Minnesota, Memphis, Dallas. That's sort of my, not mystery tier because they're all awesome, but I think Minnesota might have the best chance of supplanting one of those sort of penciled-in top four teams. That doesn't mean that I think they're going to go to the conference finals. Doesn't mean that I, I don't think they overpaid for Gobert. They did. But I think this team's going to win a lot of games. I think the pieces fit. Chris Finch is the right coach for it. And I and what you just said about Cat and Gobert kind of being in the right stage of their career to just say kind of F- this noise, let's go out and win. I think this team's going to be awesome. And maybe that's – just all that matters. They're going to be a really good team. I think the fans are going to like them. I, I'm excited about that. The more I dug into the film on Ant, the potential rotations, the flexibility of how the offense and defense can work, I got more and more excited about this team the, the longer I, I sort of dove into them. Yeah, and I think that um, they are at that stage, too, where they had one little taste of the playoffs, and 
So now there is motivation to get more. I, they're, they're not f- going to be the fat and happy team that comes in. I mean, th- you got a lot of guys. Ant told me this summer that he wants to be considered one of the best players in the league and an MVP, not this year, but eventually here. Cat um, has believed that he has been overlooked for a long time. Rudy has faced all of this criticism. Jaden McDaniels wants to make a name for himself. Like, There's a lot of motivation internally to show that these Timberwolves, these hapless Timberwolves, these dysfunctional Timberwolves that have just shot themselves in the foot and in the ass and in every other place you could shoot yourself over the last 15 to 18 years, like that something's turning and changing with, with the organization. The only way they do that is to win and win at a consistent level. If they make the playoffs this season, if they just make the playoffs, it will be just the, the first time that they've gone back-to-back since 03-04. And if they advance out of the first round of the playoffs, it will be the second time in 34 years that they have advanced out of the first round of the playoffs. Like, that's the mountain that they're trying to climb. And they now have assembled a very talented group with a good coaching staff and a good front office. And I think they have a chance to make a move here. If not now, when? And that's what they did. That's what they asked themselves when they made the Rudy Gobert trade. What are we waiting for? Let's just go here. We can go get this guy. He can address our major shortcomings in rim protection and shot blocking. We have a 21-year-old that's ready to make the leap. We have a 28-year-old, 27-year-old that is an all-NBA player. Let's go. And that's what they're trying to do right now. Yes, John Krasinski. I'm excited. Uh, it's always great to see your face. I'm coming to Minnesota this year. I haven't Please. looked at their schedule yet, but I'm going to pick a quick two-game homestand at least and come out and see everybody. We can go out for some some beverages after a game and, and hang out in person for the first time in way too long. It's just you're, you're awesome. I love having you on, and uh, everybody should read your stuff at The Athletic. It's just as, as absolutely as good as it gets. Listen to the John Krasinski Show for all your Minnesota podcasting needs, not just Wolves. The Vikings get in there. There's lots of Minnesota talk. Uh, Mr. Krasinski, thank you for your time. I will see you soon. Can't wait, Zach. Uh, beers on me when we get out here, and uh, we'll have a great time, and uh, it's going to be a fun season. <laughs>